Ezra uh, chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6 is where we'll start. Um, Again, we're going through the books of the Bible. I've really enjoyed the book of Ezra. It's a great book, a practical book. A lot of doctrine in it, but a lot of practical things to take out of it. Um, I'm going to attempt to do it tonight. Uh, if you need a copy of the handout, it's there. Eli's got some. If uh, you're online, you're watching on YouTube, I put these notes in the comment section, so you could have them there as well. But uh, some, and we're good, Josh, we're recording. So some vital statistics. Uh, we, like you see, we've got 10 chapters, not a very long book, 280 verses, 7,440 words. Uh, the author is Ezra the priest. Uh, in fact, eight times it says that it mentions Ezra the priest. Uh, he is actually a descendant of Hilkiah, who actually was the one who found the book under Josiah's reign, which we'll get back to later. Uh, the time period, again, these are Bishop Usher's dates, but 536 B.C. to 432 B.C. You want to understand this about, about uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. These are post-exile books. So we're now, uh, after the 70 years of captivity, we're talking about the Jews coming back into the land. And um, we have covered now, believe it or not, we've covered a big chunk of time from where we started this uh, study in Genesis and to Second Chronicles, we've covered 3,400 years of history. Right, so it's a big chunk of Israel's history. We have covered a lot of the narrative. When we get to the prophets, they're going to plug into some of these time periods. But we've covered 3,400 years of history. We have seen Israel get called out. We've seen Israel as a nation get formed. We've seen Israel as a nation get established under David and Solomon. And we've seen Israel start to fall. And remember we talked about the first time we came together, we said in our first night, however long ago that was when we started this study of the books, we said the Bible is a study of the king and its kingdoms, right? We said there were these kingdoms and that the Bible is a study of a king formulating kingdoms, a spiritual kingdom of God and a literal physical kingdom of heaven, right? And we have seen in what we are looked at so far, we've seen the collapse and the fall of both of those kingdoms. In Genesis chapter 3, we saw the kingdom of God lost in the garden. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, like we looked at last week, we looked at 2 Chronicles, we saw the kingdom of heaven, that physical political kingdom, lost to the Gentiles under Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as they carried them away to captivity and put end to any of Israel's political standing. So I want you to get this in your mind. The book of Ezra is set in the times of the Gentiles. It's set in the time when Israel, or Judah in this case as a nation, has lost their political power, they've lost their king, they've lost their throne, they've lost that standing, and now we've got uh, the times of the Gentiles. All right? The times of the Gentiles. And it's interesting because you're going to have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther are going to be after the captivity. And you're going to have an Ezra, you're going to have them going back to, you're going to have the return of the Jew to the land. Nehemiah, you're going to have the rebuilding of the land. Esther, you're going to have a Gentile bride swapped for a Jewish queen. 
and Job, you're going to have somebody going through tribulation. And in Psalms, you're going to have a king show up and a kingdom being established. So a lot of stuff we're going to get into in the next few weeks about how this all lays out. But the big idea that you want to get about this book is the return of the remnant. All right, Ezra is the book of the return. It's told from this spiritual point of view because it's told by Ezra the priest. So he's going to give us a spiritual point of view about this return of the people. In Ezra chapter 6, verse number 5, Jesus Christ has a different delineation, a different picture in the book of Ezra, right? Uh, Eli's got the papers if you need them. Uh, Ezra chapter 6, verse 5, the Bible says, um, Ezra 6, 5, And also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem, and brought unto Babylon, be restored, and brought again unto the temple, which is at Jerusalem, everyone to his place, and place them in the house of, of, of God. So this is picturing Jesus Christ as our restorer. All the things the world carries away, Jesus Christ can get them back from us. All the things that sin makes us lose, Jesus Christ can restore for us. And that's how Jesus Christ is pictured as our restorer. Now, before I jump into the chapters, one last thing to think about is the three applications of the book of Ezra, which are really the three applications of any book, right? Every book has, I said I wasn't going to write on it, <laughs> has a historical application, a doctrinal application, and a, an inspirational application. So, historically, this book talks about what happened in the past to Israel when they came back after the exile. This really happened after their 70 years of captivity. Doctrinally, it tells us what's going to happen and what would happen after the Jews had been dispersed and returned again to the land. Now, that has already happened in the early 20th century, but it was pictured thousands of years before in the book of Ezra. And inspirationally, practically, spiritually, say amen if you're with me. (laughs) It's about you. How do you get back to God? How do you return to God? How do you come back to the Lord when sin has taken you astray? So the book of Ezra is about temple building. It's a temple building book. So if you want to rebuild your temple and get yourself back to God, the book of Ezra is going to have some lessons for you. So as you see on your sheet, the breakdown is pretty basic. Chapters 1 to 6 is the leadership from Zerubbabel. Right? I think that's how you say the name. If it's not, you could correct me later. And that's like the first wave that goes back to Jerusalem out of captivity. They're led by Zerubbabel. And those really inspirationally deal with the external problems you face when you try to come back to God. And chapter 7 to 10 is that next wave that comes back to Jerusalem. That's the leadership from Ezra, the priest. And that deals more with the internal problems we face when we come back to God. So we're going to jump in now into chapter 1. If you want to go to chapter Chapter 1. We're going to just walk across these chapters and we're going to see some Bible pictures and important truths in the book of Ezra. So, the first thing we see in chapter 1 is in chapter 1, we've got the decree of Cyrus to return. All right, let's look at chapter 1, verse number 1, and let's talk about what this could mean. Uh, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, very important, 
the Lord stirred up, there it is, the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build them a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, wow, uh, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So right there, now think about this. After 70 years, that's about the lifespan of somebody, right? 70 years in Babylon, the king of Media Persia, Cyrus king of Persia, makes this decree. And he said, I'm making this decree to fulfill something that Jeremiah prophesied 71 years earlier. If you go to Jeremiah 25, you could see what he's talking about. Hold your place in, um, in Ezra and go to Jeremiah 25. This is a good cross-reference. This is what Cyrus is talking about. Man, wouldn't it be nice if he had some Gentile leaders that had a respect for the Bible, like Cyrus? I mean, my goodness. I mean, this guy knew Bible. He knew who Jeremiah was. He had enough respect for God. He said, I'm not just going to let the Jews go back. Give them some gold and silver and stuff, too, and some beasts to help them get back. An amazing, amazing situation. Um, Jeremiah 25, verse 11, all right? This is prophesied about a year before the captivity, about a year before Nebuchadnezzar would carry them away. Right, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. There it is. And it shall come to pass when seventy years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it a perpetual desolation. So Jeremiah prophesied seventy years of Babylonian captivity for Judah. Now, when Babylon came in, that ushered in the times of the Gentiles, right? Israel would no longer have a kingdom, and it would be given over to the Gentiles. And if you read Daniel chapter 2, you get that image that Daniel sees, which gives us all those different kingdoms that would make up the times of the Gentiles. The head of gold was going to be Babylon. That's the first kingdom that Daniel saw would have power in the times of the Gentiles. But after the head of gold is set aside, he sees the breastplate and the arms of silver, and that's the kingdom of Media Persia. So after the king of Babylon is put down, the king of Media Persia rises. And if you go to Ezra 1.1, that's what he's saying right there. I'm Cyrus, the king of Persia. That's that second kingdom in the times of the Gentiles, and that second kingdom that's ruling the known world is telling the Israelites to go back up, the Jews to go back up. That, that's just amazing. You know what that tells me in Ezra 1.1? It says, the Lord stirred him up. You know what that tells me? That God will use and can use anyone, even a Gentile king, to accomplish his will. God is not bound. God's not limited. Don't worry about who's in the office or who's in the United Nations, who's in the, you know, I was going to say the NWO. I was going to say that's just the NWO, the NATO and all these rulers of the world. God is just, he raises up kings. He puts down kings. The heavens do rule, the Bible says. And God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Think about what has just happened in the last 70 years. In Jeremiah 27, God calls Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. 
God says that you Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're running the show, Nebi? No, I'm moving you around to accomplish my will. He called Nebuchadnezzar his hammer. You know what his hammer was going to do? Break the temple down. Break the Jews down. Break the kingdom down. Seventy years later, you know what he does? He stirs up the spirit of another Gentile named Cyrus. Why? Not to break down, but to allow the remnant to rebuild. God will accomplish his will. Go to Proverbs 21. Just a little thought on that. Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21. Look at 21.1. Proverbs 21.1. <clears throat> Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. You ever watch that river flow? It just flows where it's going to flow. It turns, it ebbs, it top moves. Now, you have a choice, brethren. You can go with the flow, or you could try to resist the current and get drowned. God is in control, and you can choose to resist His call or yield to His call. You could choose to go with the movement of His will, or you could choose to resist His will. But either way, God's will is going to be accomplished. God's glory is going to be brought into this earth. The whole earth is going to be full of His glory. You could choose to yield and be a vessel unto honor and go with God's plan and be blessed and bring Him glory that way. Or you could choose to resist, and God will even get glory out of your destruction. Just you can resist that current, but it's still going to keep on flowing in the direction it's going to flow, like the rivers of water. So, what a blessing. Ecclesiastes, go to chapter... Here's another truth I take out of Cyrus's decree. The first truth I take out of it is God can use anybody. He could use an idiot like me. He could use... You could probably think of other idiots that occupy much higher offices. He could use anybody in positions of power. He'll just move them around the way he wants to move them around. Um... Some people died when Trump didn't get reelected. You know, just that some people thought, this is it, we're going into the tribulation, here we go. I mean, you might have felt that way, but remember, God's eye is not on America. God's eye is on Israel. That's where his eyes are always there. So if you want to know what the temperature of the world is, listen, man, they threw our brethren to lions in the first century. They tore our brethren apart in the, uh, in the dark ages. Just because gas is high and inflation is out of control doesn't mean you're going through the tribulation yet. Right? You're not going through the tribulation. Right? But I want to show you this, Ecclesiastes 1, look at verse 9. Here's a second big idea you could take away from Cyrus's decree. Josh looked at me suspiciously when he said, you're going to do this book in one night, so I have to keep moving. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. What it tells me is what happened in Ezra's day would happen again. Right? Everything in the Bible, you've got to see the patterns. Yes, there are verses that say this and say that. But if you could start to see the similitudes and the patterns, then you could start connecting the dots. And think about what happened. In Ezra's day, a Gentile king gives a decree for this scattered people to go up and possess their land again. Hello! U.S. President Harry Truman 
is the first world leader, you as President Harry Truman is a Gentile, by the way, one of several, I'm just zeroing him out. He was the first world leader to officially recognize Israel as a legitimate Jewish state on May 14, 1948, one day before Pentecost, 11 minutes after its creation, Harry Truman, a Gentile king, acknowledged that. Again, Gentile kings acknowledging and encouraging the Jews to go back to their land. It happened again. After they were dispersed, it happened again. One of the greatest evidences that this Bible is true is the Jew in that land again. Nobody ever thought the Jew would ever be back in that land. And after their dispersion, there they are, back in that land, and some Gentile kings and leaders like Harry Truman gave a decree to recognize that nation. And in 1953, when Israel was honoring former President Harry Truman, do you know what he said when they honored him? He said, oh, no, no. He said, I am Cyrus. Harry Truman knew his Bible, I guess, enough to say, oh, don't honor me, I'm just Cyrus. You do know what, what other figure, when, when Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem, you know what coin they put to commemorate, right? They put a bust of Trump's face with who? Cyrus, right? right? So there's something, about, there's something about that. What happened in the past is going to happen again in the future. So you just chew on that for a little while. Uh, all right, let's go to Ezra chapter 2. And Harry Truman one is really a good one. All right, I think if I say Trump, then I might get a strike on my channel. Um, all those open-minded bigots. All right, Ezra chapter 2. I'm going to show you Ezra chapter 2 now. Ezra chapter 2 is the return of the remnant. The return of the remnant. Now we're actually going back. Ezra chapter 2. Now, the return of the remnant is a picture of our return to God. I want you to see the picture here. Now, think about what's happened. Israel's temple has been destroyed. Why? Because of sin. Because sin destroys everything. Sin wrecks everything. It's not that simple. I've said it before. It's not geopolitics and the nuance among Middle Eastern nations and cultural mores. It's sin. Israel's temple is destroyed because they turned against their God in sin and idolatry. And now God is giving them a chance to return and rebuild their temple. Hallelujah. What a merciful God. Your temple is destroyed and gets destroyed because of sin. You are separated, God, from because of sin, and sin is always what messes you up. You know what God gives you a chance to do? He gives you a chance to return and rebuild some things. At salvation, you know what happens to the sinner? He is regenerated. He is given life again. He had life back there in the garden, and he lost it when that Holy Spirit departed, and then God puts that Holy Spirit back into that lost person when he gets saved, and he is regenerated. He's given life again. Something that was lost is now able to return. And even for us saints, when we go astray and sin makes us do something stupid, you know what the Lord says? That saint can be restored. What you lost can be put back in if you return to God. Ezra is about the remnant returning to God. And not everybody's going to return. It's a remnant. Not everybody gets saved. Jesus said, few there be that find it. And I'll even tell you, among the Christians, not everybody wants God like they should. But God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. Go to Ezra chapter 2, look at verse 1. Now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away unto Babylon, and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, 
every one unto his city, which came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Rileah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Zitmispar, Bigvi, Rehom, Bana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Please notice that God knows exactly who's in his remnant. He makes a whole list of people here, and he's got them all numbered. You know why? You may feel like nobody. You may feel like even on a quiet night like tonight, who's paying attention to us? Can I tell you something? The people that want to get to God, God has got your name. He knows who you are. He remembers you. God knows who's in his remnant. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knoweth them that are his. You may feel few, you may feel like the minority of the minority, but God has got you written down. God knows who you are. God always has a remnant. You know what this reminds me right here? The Lord has not forgotten you. If you want the Lord, He has not forgotten you. You see these guys, they were walking into a city that had been burnt. There must have been animals running through there, uh, burnt stones, rubble everywhere, a destruction. These people are walking around going, what are we going to do with this? And God's writing their names down in a book for you to remember that these people wanted God. And even though they weren't everybody, there were some people that stayed in Babylon. There were some people that kind of got comfortable in the world. But a remnant said, no, I want to get back to God. And God said, I'm going to write you down because God always makes note of his remnant. He always has a remnant. Even I think when Elijah was complaining, the Lord said, I got me 7,000 men who have not bound the knee to Baal. God always has a remnant and God knows who his remnant is. The question is, I'm getting ahead of myself, are you in that number? Do you want them? Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Great pictures in the book of Ezra. Chapter 3 is about the foundation of the temple is laid. They lay the foundation in chapter 3. Look at verse number 8. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shelatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests, and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Henadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. They set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Can you picture this? Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house that Solomon's temple when the foundation of that this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people for the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off you say what does the foundation of the temple picture it pictures the day you got saved That's the day. What does the Bible tell us in 1 Corinthians 3? Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And when you got saved, you know what God did? He slapped the foundation down, and now you've got something that you can build on and build for and do something that's acceptable to God. All before that, it was a waste. 
20, 30, 40, 50 years, living in the world, lost, all the stuff you built, God said, meh, it means nothing to me. It's a waste. As soon as you got saved, God slapped a rock down. Jesus Christ is that rock. He's the foundation. Now God says, now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, now you got something that can abide the fire. Now you got a starting point, brethren. You can build something that God accepts now. All the palaces and the towers of Babel and like the things that the world tries to build to impress themselves and impress those things up there that are watching. Guess what? God wants none of it. You know what God's looking for? A sure foundation. A tried cornerstone. If you've got that, you've got the right foundation. You can't build your temple without Him. You can't even get this process going until you've got the right foundation. Now, notice what happens. You got that picture? You got that picture? You see verse 11 and 12? You notice what's happening when they lay the foundation? There's some people screaming and shouting and running the aisles and putting plants on the head and maybe throwing hymnals around. I don't know what they're doing, but they're getting excited. They're running around, maybe jumping into a baptistry. I don't know. We've been in some places. Uh, But they're running around getting excited, and those older guys are weeping. You know that picture is? There's a mix of joy and weeping when the foundation is laid. You know when a, a baby is born into the world, there's joy and pain. Man, mama, she goes through some labor pains. And when that baby is born, there's some joy. But there's some pain that's like mixed into it, right? You know when you get saved, it's like joy and pain like mixed into it. There's joy, right? Because there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Amen? God is excited. God is shouting. I think God is the one leading the blowing the horn up there and getting excited. But you know what? Godly sorrow worketh repentance. You know, before you get saved, there's got to be a little bit of an understanding that I have sinned against a holy God. Like, my sin is disgusting in the sight of God. My sin nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. My sin caused those wounds on the sinless Son of God. You know what? I remember my life. I don't know about your life, but there was some pain. There was some angst. There was some distress before I got saved. And and then there was joy. Weeping endured for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And when you see that foundation laid, there's some weeping and there's some joy because that's salvation. There's some sorrow and then there's some joy. There's some Ooh, I'm going to hell, and ooh, I can go to heaven. Like there's both in that same moment, in that same act that God brings you into this world when you are born again. Joy and pain bring you through that. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. Now, you get saved. The foundation is laid. Guess who shows up? The adversaries show up. Right? Ezra 4.1. Now, when... The, in the Bible, an amazing book, who would have thought this? Who would have thought, how can this be that this is laid out, historically accurate, doctrinally true, and practically so instructive, right? Uh, a call goes out, people return, a foundation is laid, and then the adversaries show up. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel. What does the Bible tell us? Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He's not, if you're living in the world and not trying to get to God, he isn't too worried about you. Stay in the gutter. 
You just, you're doing His work for Him. But if you're trying to get close to God, if you're trying to draw nigh to God, if you're trying to build something for God, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> just wait a second here. You know, boys, you know, He sends some of His minions out. He's going he's gonna to kind of like get some movement in there, get some opposition in there. Don't be surprised when it happens. Don't be surprised when doors open and you start trying to take two steps forward that the devil doesn't come with a baseball bat and try to knock you five steps back. This is the way it is, man. This is spiritual warfare. And if you look at I'm going to show you what they do. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 2. You know how they try to get you to, you know how the adversaries try to discourage you and frustrate your building? Look at Ezra 4.2. Then they came to Zerubbabel, and the chief of the fathers said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esaradon, king of Asher, which brought, up, brought us up hither. They wanted to compromise with them. That's always the devil's first step. Don't be such a fanatic. Don't be so zealous. Don't make such a big deal of that Bible. Let's just all get along together, can we? I, your God, my God, we all got the same God, don't we? Right? That's, that's the first step. If he could just, if the devil can just cool your jets a little bit and just back your zeal up a little bit, he'll count that as a dub. He'll take that as a win if he could just get you to just back off that line just a little bit. Maybe all Bibles are the same. Maybe all churches are the same. Maybe all paths to God are the same. You know, we're all serving the same God. We're serving God like you do. Can you worship with us? Ecumenicism, right? Compromise. That's number one. You want to see the second thing? Verse four. Then that didn't work. Because Zerubbabel, I like the way they say, verse three, you have nothing to do with us. Kind of like, get away from me, you little fly. Just get out of here, right? Verse four. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. If he can't get you to dip the colors, you know what the enemy's going to try to do? He's going to try to drain your strength so you've got nothing left to build with. Weaken your hands so you don't have the strength, the energy, the zeal, the enthusiasm to do anything for God. Right? I felt it. Haven't you felt it? You think it's not by design that the world we live in, where we live, has got you working 50, 60, 7 hours a week, both parents working, kids going here, everybody going there. So by the end of the week, you crash into the weekend and you just, I can't make it to church this weekend. I got to work a double. I got to work a triple. I got to get them over here. I got to run. You think that's all by accident? That the world is designed to be this pressure cooker? So even Christians are just like, I'm too spent for Bible study. I can't go to prayer meeting. I can't go to church this week. I'm just not feeling up to it. Why? Because you were shot running around chasing house and chasing money and chasing stuff. And the devil's just got you coming and going. And he's just draining your energy. So what do you got left for God? Breadcrumbs. You got maybe seconds for God. God, I got three seconds between going to the bathroom and shoving a muffin down my throat before I get out to work and I can maybe whisper a prayer up to you. You think that's all by coincidence that the world is so busy, busy, busy? No, it's the enemy. He's trying to weaken your hands. He's trying to sap your strength. So you know what? You get home at the end of the day, you don't have time to read your Bible. You don't have energy to read your Bible. You're just so shot from the work week or the carpooling or whatever else is you did, the parties, the social engagements, that you're just shot. Man, we need to all need some unplugging. Verse 5. Verse 5. Weakened hands. Compromise. You know verse 5? 
and hired counselors against them. Hello. <laughs> Sounds like we got some proper lawyers here or something. I don't know what this is all about, but they hired counsels against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They hire counsels against them. They kind of get some, some people that can give some advice, some help, some, some discussion, right? That's, that's what's going on here, right? Strange business, isn't it? You think all these, you know, we can't have prayer in public school. We can't have the Bible in school. We'll sue you for this. You can't do this. Well, there's a no-knock neighborhood. Oh, you're soliciting. You know what that is? Those are counselors being raised up to try to kind of box us all into a corner so we can't build. What do they tell us all the time, brother? You can't solicit. We're like, we're not soliciting. We're not soliciting. I'm just handing somebody something else, right? But they, the council are trying to change the laws, change the rules. One time they tried to tell us, well, you can't, you know, you can't walk around this township and tell people about God. Are you out of your mind? Are you out of God who made the oxygen and the ground and the air and the birds and the trees and the sun that you all enjoy? It's craziness. But they're trying to paint us into a corner so we can't do anything. So we're just restricted. Keep reading. Verse 6. If they can't get you to dip the colors, if they can't drain you, if they can't devise anything against you that'll stop you, you know, verse 6, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. They'll make accusations against you to denounce you. They'll call you names. They'll condemn you. They'll call you this thing. You're that thing. You're a troublemaker. You're a busybody. You're a problem this. You're a problem that. You're troubling our people. You know, you want, you know, you want free garbage pickup. You want free snow removal. We don't want a church in this township, right? They'll, they'll denounce you and, and hurl these accusations against you. Why? To try to keep you from building. And what's the last thing they'll do? What they did to your Savior. Verse 12. Verse 12. The last thing they'll do to you is what they did to your Savior. Verse 12. Now they're writing this letter to Artaxerxes, and it says in there, Be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city, and have set up the walls thereof and joined the foundations. They lied about them. They distorted who they were and what they were trying to do. Look, we're not, we don't want any trouble. We're not trying to trouble anything. I think a Christian should be a good citizen, should be the best citizen on the block, the best citizen in the town. But when those laws cross the laws of God, that's a whole different story. But we're not here trying to overthrow anything. Right? Didn't they say to uh, Elijah, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? He said, I didn't trouble Israel. Your sin troubled Israel, Ahab. We're not trying to trouble our towns. We're trying to help our towns. We're trying to help people. We're trying to give them the only thing that actually helped them, eternal life through Jesus Christ and a new heart. That'll change them, not to change an office. Now, I think you should vote and vote the right person in that has the closest to the best things that you can get. But you know what? It's the gospel that's going to really help people. And we're trying to bring out life, not death. But they distort it. They say, you're a rebel. You're a troublemaker. They said that about Jesus. They had false witnesses against him. You know what I heard an old preacher say one time, and I couldn't remember who said it. So whoever you are out there, you get the credit for it. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to the devil. The closer you get to God's work, the devil's right there next to it trying to frustrate it. And these people are getting close to something, and when you get close to something, old Splitfoots, you're going to smell his whiff coming in the back door. He's going to be there. Why? Even Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, he said, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. 
not but there are many adversaries, and there are many adversaries, meaning that's the way it goes, folks. When God opens a big door, just be looking over your shoulder because be prayed up and ready because the enemy is going to show up and try to frustrate that work. That's chapter 4. Let's go to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and 6. Chapter 5 and 6 is the question of authority. That's going to come up in your life as you try to rebuild. The question of authority. Look at Ezra 5.9. Now, the, the enemies now are, are recounting what they said to, to, the, uh, to the Jews, and it says, then these are the enemies speaking, the adversaries, then asked we those elders and said unto them thus, who commanded you to build this house and to make up these walls? The enemy wants to question our authority. They're saying, who gave you the right to do this? Who told you that you could do this? Who said you could come here and build the temple again and do this again, right? That's always the question. Who said you could do it? The battle has always been about authority. What did they say to Jesus? Matthew 21. They asked Jesus Christ, those skeptics, by what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? They asked, the, they asked the disciples that. You know, who told you you could do this? They're asking the Jews here, who told you you could do this? They want to undermine your authority. Brethren, the first conflict in the Bible was not in the Garden of Eden. The first conflict in the Bible was up there in outer space somewhere. It's when Lucifer in Isaiah 14 said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The first conflict recorded in the Bible is about a throne. It was a struggle for authority. Who gets to run this thing? It's a question of authority. You know what the battle in the church today is about? It's about authority. Will you submit to the authority God has left us? Will you submit to the King James Bible that God has left us that is supposed to be our authority in all matters of faith and practice? We're supposed to submit to that authority, but it's a battle of authorities. You know what's going to be your biggest struggle in your heart, Christian? Who gets to sit on the throne of your heart? Who gets to rule your life? It's a battle about authority. And as you grow, you're going to have to wrestle with whether or not you're going to yield to God's authority or kick against the pricks. If you you don't yield, the growth stops. But if you yield, the temple can continue to build. I go to chapter 7. Keep staying and staying with me. And that war that rages inside. You know why wars rage inside believers today? Because they just don't want to put Jesus on the throne. There's a battle inside of them. They're wrestling, right? Jesus Christ says, I deserve that throne, and I want the throne. And you have this internal conflict. The flesh is lusting against the Spirit. The Spirit's saying, put Jesus Christ at the throne. When you put Jesus Christ on the throne of your heart, you know what happens when Jesus Christ sits on the throne in the millennium? You know what it's called? A period of rest and peace. When you put Jesus Christ on the throne of your heart, you know what you get? You get rest. You get peace. But the struggle is because you don't want to give in to His authority. You don't want to yield to the King of kings and Lord of lords in your heart. And you're like those heathen that rage. You know, don't rage. Yield. And you'll have rest. 
Now, chapter 7 moves us into the second section of the book. It moves us into the book that deals with the internal problems. So far, we've had external problems. We've had enemies. We've had people question authority. We've had people try to discourage us. We've had, you know, the return that had to happen. But chapter 7 is about the prepared heart. And we start to move inside now and not outside. Ezra 7 verse 1. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Zariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, remember him from 2 Chronicles, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zeraiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra, so Ezra is a priest that goes all the way back to Aaron, this Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given and the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him and there went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king and he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month which was in the seventh year of the king for upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon and on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him so this is the second wave now. There's another wave of people going up to Jerusalem under Ezra. And verse 10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Ezra, I just want you to notice this, Ezra prepared his heart, not just his head. He knew a lot. He was a scribe. But that verse says he was able to lead these people and teach these people the Bible because he prepared his heart first. Remember we talked about last week, 2 Chronicles, preparing your heart, how important it is. You will never learn the Bible with your head without your heart. Never. You could read every book, get every graph, see every chart, memorize every verse. But unless you're like Ezra, who it gets down to your heart and you start doing it and living it, you'll never learn the Bible like you should. It'll be a bucket of head knowledge and knowledge puffeth up. Right? You might know the difference between a seraphim and a cherubim. You might be able to tell me all the nuances of the wheels within the wheels in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. You know what that does for your heart? Nothing. You're as dead as a stone tomb, right? The Bible is not just given for our information, Moody said, but for our transformation. And when you take a prayer promise and you plead it back to God and you see that assurance that God gives you, you know what that is? That's a heart matter. That's something you can't get moved out of. You don't just know God up here. You know God down here now. You know, when you give that track and you pray and weep over somebody and you see them get saved and you see God do something miraculous in somebody's life, you know what it is? That's not just you saying, all things work together for good. Like, I know that verse in my head. No, that's God actually showing it to you and you're experiencing it. You know what it is? Now you know it down in your heart. God's saying, I want to see you prepare your heart. That's how you really know me. Psalm 25, 14. The secret of the Lord is with them that Fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Isaiah 66, to this man will I look, whoso trembleth at my word. That's not an intellectual thing. When I read Kant and Shakespeare 
and you know, all these guys that I had to read in grad school and all this stuff, it didn't make me tremble, it made me yawn. I can remember the thesis, I can remember the premise, I can remember the, 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 you know, the syllogism and all the, the reason they laid out, but it didn't move my heart. You know what moves my heart? Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Learn that down in your heart. You know what? Now you're knowing God. Take my wife. I don't just know facts about my wife, her birth date, her favorite color, you know, where she likes to eat. I don't, that, that's not knowing her. It's having a relationship, right? That's, it's the heart issue. God says, I want you to have a heart relationship with my word, not just a head relationship. If you really want to know me, that I may know him. That makes sense? Amen. All right, chapter 8. Almost there. I'm going to do it, Josh. I'm going to do it. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 is about the good men. Now, I'm going to circle this around in a few minutes, and you're going to see how all these chapters just paint a great picture. But we had the question of authority in 5 to 6, the prepared heart in chapter 7, and now we've got the good men in chapter 8. Ezra 8.1 lists the companions that go with Ezra up to Jerusalem. These are now the chief of their fathers, and this is the genealogy of them that went up with me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. And if you jump to 21, you're going to see that the people that went up with Ezra were good men. Good in the fact that they wanted God. They wanted to return. They wanted to see the temple built and restored and God's name established again in Israel. 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might, aff- that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of Him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way because we had spoken unto the king saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek Him, but His power and His wrath is against all them that forsake Him. So we fasted and besought our God for this. And He was entreated of us. So He's going up there and He's saying, Man, we need some stuff. I don't want to ask the Gentile king to hook us up. I said I was doing God's work. I need God to help me here. You know what, guys? They all get together and they fast and pray together that God would move in their lives. You know what? When it comes to the things that we're doing here, you know what our testimony should be? That we didn't have to go to the world for anything. That we just got on our hands and knees and asked God to help us and got some good brothers and sisters together to fast and pray. You know George Mueller built orphanages all over England? He never asked anybody for a dime. That just makes me so convicted. My teeth want to fall out of my mouth. They say he might have prayed in millions of dollars by current standards. He made his request known to God with full assurance of faith and just said, Lord, unless... One guy wanted to watch him pray one time, thought it was going to be this great exercise of emotion. He bowed his head, said a quick prayer, and the guy looked at him like, that was it? Because Mueller had such a faith and such a confidence and such an intimate relationship with his God that he knew, Lord, unless you, unless you do it, nobody's going to get it done. Those are the kinds of people you want to surround yourself with if you want to build. Good men with a heart for God. Look at verse 35. 35. Also the children of those that had been carried away, which were come out of the captivity, offered burnt offerings unto the God of Israel, twelve bullocks for all Israel, ninety and six rams, seventy and seven lambs, twelve he goats for a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering unto the Lord. Man, these people are fasting, they're praying, they're sacrificing. Ezra went back with some good dudes, some good people. And can I say this to you, instructive-wise, inspirationally, if you want to get back to God, 
you better be careful about the company you keep. If you really want to get all God has for you, you better watch who you like fellowship with, associate with, give your heart to. Somebody said, you show me your friends and I'll show you who you are. And Ezra got himself around some good people that wanted the same thing and they just kept going on for God. Look at Psalm chapter 1. I'll show you. It's all over the Bible. But I'll just show you a few verses about this. And if you say, oh, Pat, you're an isolationist. No, I'm not. i got to go to work tomorrow like you will. I'll have lunch with my colleagues like you will. But I know who I want to really surround myself with and fellowship with and really spend the most time with. If you're spending more time with the lost than you are with the saved, you might be a little bit out of whack there, brother. Amen. Might be a little disproportionate there, sister. You want to be around people and fellowshipping with people and giving your heart and time and energy to and with people that want the same thing you want, God. Psalm 1-1, you know it, I'll just read it. This is the key to the whole book of Psalms. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. If you want to be blessed, he's like, you better not walk with the wrong crowd. You better not listen to their counsel. You better not stand in their way. You better not sit with the scornful. If you do, you're not going to be blessed. (laughs) Go to Proverbs chapter 13. That makes sense? Proverbs chapter 13. Look at verse 20. Proverbs 13, 20. Proverbs 13, 20. Good, good, good. Proverbs 13, 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. Do you need me to exposit that verse for you? Is it so deep that you can't understand that one? He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Right? I'll tell my kids, play basketball with people that are better than you. They'll make you better. If you play basketball with people that are worse with than you, you're going to play worse. If you want to walk with wise people, if you want to be wise, walk with people that are wise. If you want to be a fool, hang around other people that are fools. A companion of fools shall be destroyed. Go to 2 Timothy, way in your New Testament now. It's just a few verses left here. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now Paul's talking to a a pastor named Timothy, a bishop named Timothy, and he's going to give Timothy the same advice. He's going to give the young bishop, the young preacher, the same advice. 2 Timothy 2.22. Watch it very carefully. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness. That's good. Faith, good. Charity, good. Peace, good. With them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He's saying, hey, Timothy, if you want to serve God, you've got to be a lover of good men. He told Titus, a pastor needs to be a lover of good men, surrounded by good men, hanging out with other people that out of pure heart are calling upon God and want to see God do something in their life. Hope you keep in the right company, because evil communications corrupt good manners. Chapter 9 and 10 now. Go back to Ezra. We'll go back to our last couple of chapters there. Ezra 9 and Ezra 10. Now we said this part of the book is about internal problems. The external problems are in the beginning, and you'll have some external problems as you try to return to God. You'll have adversaries. You'll have opposition. You'll have a difficult way. But you know what's going to happen? You're going to have problems with your heart. You're going to have problems with fellowship. And right here, you're going to have problems with sin. 
Chapters 9 and 10 are about the importance of separation, about cleaning your vessel and not letting yourself get corrupted by mingling with all the wicked world around you. And in chapter 9, the remnant is losing their separation. See 9-1? Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. They're mingling with the world. They're intermarrying with the world. It's a picture of us when we join ourselves to the world. You know what Ezra does? Oh, well, it's the 20th, 21st century. Got to get with the ages, guys. Got to update your theology. Got to stop being so old-fashioned, so legalistic. You know what Ezra did? And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard. You ever rip the, rip the hair out of your beard? He did that to Jesus Christ. Not a pleasant experience. He's not having it done to him. He's doing it himself. He's so overcome with grief because of the sin of his people. He's ripping his clothes and literally tearing his hair out. And he says there, And sat down astonied. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonied until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O my God, I am ashamed, and blushed to lift up my face to Thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass has grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face, as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord, our God, to leave us a remnant, to escape, and to give us a nail in His holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes, and give us a little reviving in our bondage. You know what I think we need to do at the next prayer meeting? Instead of just... You know, it's needful. Everybody that's sick and everybody has a test tomorrow. You know what we need to do? Probably stop and just ask God to have mercy on our towns and have mercy on our nation for how much we have offended you. That's what Ezra is doing. He said, God, he's, it's not even his own sin. It's somebody else's sin. He said, oh my God, have mercy on us. You gave us this chance to rebuild and we're still being knuckleheads. I'm ashamed. I can't even look. God, have mercy on us. Because corruption comes when you mingle with the world. That's how you get corrupt. When you mingle with the world and let those things into your heart or join your body to the world, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get corrupted. Your vessel is going to get defiled. Ezra 9 is about the defilement of the vessel. And Ezra 10 is about the remnant restoring that separation, getting that filthiness out. Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. That tells me, if you'll get right with God, somebody might follow your example. 
And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God. That's not every head bowed. That's a public confession of his sin. We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law. The remnant's separation is restored. You know why? They say, you know what? We're going to put away this uncleanness. We're going to get this filthiness out of here and we're going to make some things right. Would you make that covenant? Would you realize when God puts His finger on your sin and says, that's wrong, son, that's wrong, daughter, you got to get that right, would you have a little sorrow for it and say, Lord, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop that, I'm going to resolve to get victory over that, if i got to pray, if i got to fast, if i got to memorize 15 verses about it, I want to get victory over that because you've given me hope, you've given me joy, you've given me a chance to build something for you, and I don't want to blow this chance you've given me, Lord, have mercy on me, and God says, let's go, let's go. That's what happens there. But you got to clean your vessel. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Right? You know what sanctification is? Carry forth the filthiness out of this place. Get the junk. See, they had the same problems we had. Mingling with the world, their hearts getting turned away from God. Solomon's problem, Israel's problem, our problem. Amen. Good preacher, Brother Pat. I hear you, brother. Right? We're all in the same boat. I'm in the same boat with you. Right? You know what you got to do? You got to get rid of that stuff. Now, we're going to go back to Ezra 1 1. We're going to end right here. A few big ideas from the book of Ezra. A few big ideas from the book of Ezra. I don't know if you were paying attention, but I'm going to pass out some tests and we're going to have a little quiz. No, I'm only kidding. All right? But if you want to return to the Lord, if you want to get back to God, you know the book of Ezra has the blueprint. It was all laid out right in front of us. You know how you get back to God? Chapter 1, you listen to the call. The king made a decree. Are you going to take heed? Chapter 1. You know what you got to do? Chapter 2, you got to return. You got to pick yourself up out of the pig pen or out of wherever and get yourself back to where God wants you to be. That's chapter 2. And in chapter 3, you got to lay the right foundation. You got to make sure you're saved, make sure you're building on the right foundation. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4, don't quit. When the enemies try to stop you, don't give up just because somebody's resisting you or troubling you or trying to set you back. Don't give up. Chapter 5 and 6, submit to your authority. Bow the knee and bow your heart to the authority of your king. And guess what? If he sits on the throne of your heart, he can keep building. Chapter 7, prepare your heart. Learn that book, not just with your head, but with your heart. Chapters 8, Stay around good people. Stay around God's people. Stay around people that want the same things you want. They want God first and everything else second. Number 9 and 10, clean out your vessel. That's the blueprint. There's eight things there. You want to get back to God? You follow the blueprint of Ezra and you can return to God. It starts with listening to the call and it ends with you cleaning up your vessel like God says after you've been saved. Second big idea. Second big idea, the power of God's word to God's people. That you build your temple with the book. You build with the book. It's not a coincidence that the book of return, which is the book of Ezra, Ezra is the great grandson of the man Hilkiah who found the book. 
right? It's not a coincidence that Ezra prepared his heart to teach laws, the laws of God. And Ezra 1.1, the whole book starts with one of these key phrases of the book. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The word of the Lord is where the book starts. That's where the return starts. That's where the rebuilding starts. It starts with the word of the Lord getting fulfilled in your life and being fulfilled in your heart and coming to pass in your walk. That's when God can start bringing you back. And then the third big idea and final big idea. God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. The question is, do you want to be in that number? What did he say there? Verse 3. Who is there among you of all his people? He's saying, hey, who wants God? Let him go up. I can really say that to you tonight at home. Are you sitting here today? Whoever wants God, let's go. Let's go return to the Lord. If you want him, God says, I'm here. I want you if you want me. I'm not going to twist your arm. I want you to want me, but I'm just looking for people that want me. And I know when you throw out an invitation like that, you get usually a small minority answer that call. Even among professing Christians, there's a small sliver that really want God. You saw it in the disciples. There's all those disciples. At one point, there's like 500 disciples or something like that. How come only John got so close he leaned on Jesus' breast at supper? How come they didn't all want to get that close? It's always a remnant. God always has a remnant. You and I are just challenged. Will you be in that number? Do you want to be in that number? Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love you tonight. Lord, we thank you for the illustrations, the truths, this great, great book, Lord. I pray my own heart will return, Lord, and try to get closer. Help me to learn the things I preach, Lord, lest I be a castaway. Take care of us, Lord. Don't let these things get snatched out of our heart and mind. Bring us back together safely again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.